My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The intended uh, focus for the gospel readings that we hear in worship these Sundays after Pentecost is really simple. The theme is what does the church look like? <laughs> what does it look like to be church, to be disciples of Jesus? And well, as you can guess, what it looks like is about as messy as any other assembled group of human beings, right, gathered around a common cause. We claim to be called into this one body as folks making the confession that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, right? The Son of the living God, to quote Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And such being the case, we make this confession, there are some implications for that. Hmm? for that confession. It's not enough to simply acknowledge Him, in other words. It's not enough to even just worship Jesus. We have to start to look like Him. We have to start to act like Him. Any who want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross, and come follow me. That's what we heard from the Gospel reading last week. And now, it kind of starts to get real. We might, what might it mean to pick up a cross and follow? Well, I think it might start right here in this lesson that we just heard regarding how we react, how we behave when we have been harmed by a fellow cross carrier. It starts right here with how we handle ourselves when community within the faith family is threatened. You know, it strikes me that Matthew is the only gospel writer who includes these words in his gospel about how to handle it when someone sins against you in the church, which leads me to believe this one thing, that Matthew's community, the community of faith for whom he was writing his Jesus story, must have had some real nonsense going on within it, right? If he found it necessary to include these words specifically about conflict. And that, frankly, strangely, gives me some hope. Because what it does is it tells me that the first church really ain't no different than any 21st century church today, right? In other words, people are people, folks is folks, and they have been from time immemorial. And folks will sometimes fight with each other and harm each other. I stumbled upon one of the most hilarious takes on this passage just this last week. A pastor by the name of Erica McRae, she's a Presbyterian minister in Iowa, uh, wrote a, an article for the Christian Century magazine about conflict in the church from her own experience. And what makes it so hilarious isn't necessarily the particulars of the story as it is the familiarity of it. Anyone who's been a member of a church in the American Midwest within the last century for more than five minutes can relate to the story that she tells. I have lived this story myself, although not in its exact uh, details and certainly not within this congregation. I will say that right now, okay? I don't want to get myself in trouble. But her story is too good not to share. So here it is. She writes this. She says, If the North American church goes extinct, it won't, but bear with me, it won't be marauding infidels or nationalistic ideologies that does it. It'll be coffee creamer. <laughs> 
She goes on, the bitterest dispute I ever witnessed began with a suggestion that the church begin buying fair trade coffee for the after-worship fellowship time. And the pastor, to her peril, didn't know about the quote-unquote coffee mafia, nor the consequences of going against them. She gave the change her blessing to those who came forward asking for it. Twelve bags of fair trade, you know what fair trade coffee is, by the way, you know? Um, it's, it's indigenously produced and marketed, and all the pro, almost all the proceeds from the sale of it go directly to the folks in those countries growing the coffee. Cuts out the middleman, so it supports them in their work, right? It's called fair trade. And it ends up costing, you know, substantially more than what you buy at the grocery store. Anyway, and it's very good, by the way. Anyway, um, 12 bags of fair trade coffee arrived soon thereafter and were set prominently next to the coffee mafia's two R2-D2-sized coffee urns in the kitchen. But to the great disappointment of some that Sunday, the coffee mafia refused to use the new brand. And later that week in the pastor's office, the coffee mafia bewailed, A, not having been consulted about the change, and B, the new coffee's extravagant expense. The pastor assured them that no ill will was intended and that they go speak to the carafe crashers as the offenders came to be known. Jesus said little about the church. His interest was reform and revival of temple worship and devotional life of the Jewish people. The only place in the Gospels where Jesus says anything about the church is here in Matthew 18. And ironically, he brings it up in terms of conflict management. Business gurus say the best problem solving is quick, direct, happens at the lowest level. In Matthew 18, Jesus says the same thing, except he would probably add discreetly. People who identify problems address them privately, humbly, respectfully, and discreetly. He's not just giving us a command here. He's giving us an invitation, empowering us to solve problems interpersonally, that is to say, face-to-face. -face. And she goes on to say, alas, the great coffee massacre, as it came to be known, did not play out that way. Rather than talk with the carafe crashers, the coffee mafia hid the 12 bags of coffee in the church basement in the same cupboard where old China goes to die. The following week, the pastor entertained the complaints of the carafe crashers. Didn't anyone come talk to you, the pastor said? The answer was no. So, the pastor suggested that the craft crashers enlist the Java Jousters, as they came to be known, two trusted members of the congregation who also happened to like good coffee, to join them in meeting with the coffee mafia. It's important to note now that the first century church for whom Matthew was writing his gospel could not have fathomed a church in the future so self-entitled that it would threaten schism because of beverages. Jesus ain't talking about opinion or style. He's talking about real sin. Changing coffee ain't a sin, even factoring in the oversight of getting brand buy-in from all the stakeholders. But self-assertion that sneaks around, undermines others, that flies in the face of a way of life that demands humility and forbearance and kindness and forgiveness. That behavior is what Jesus wants his people to address quickly, discreetly, and directly at the lowest possible level. Needless to say, she says, the crashers and the jousters did not talk 
with the coffee mafia, but two grueling days of detective work did unearth the hidden coffee. The crashers emptied the old Folgers containers and filled them with the new coffee. The coffee mafia was not fooled. When Sunday came, the lamentable swill issuing from the coffee urns was almost as clear as water. <laughs> they watered it down <laughs> out of spite, right? Two days later, the disputants came before the church council who proposed a compromise. Blend the, sturdy, the old sturdy grind with the new fair trade grind. You can imagine what happened then. The coffee mafia wailed at the expense of the new coffee, remained unjustifiable. The carafe crashers moaned that the piquant rainforest flavors would be diluted in the new blend. Jesus tells his followers to treat an unrepentant sinner in the church, quote, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's not forget that most of Jesus' followers over the centuries have been Gentiles. And as for tax collectors, Jesus called one to be his disciple, one for whom this very gospel is named, by the way, right? Matthew. He ate with them, inviting them into their homes and defending not only his right, but his responsibility to be there when respectable members of the community complained about the company he chose to keep. Jesus did not advocate punishing people or putting them out of the church. His stance was unerringly patient, kind, and forgiving. Gnashing their teeth, she says, the coffee mafia and the carafe crashers submitted to the church council's will to blend the two together. And the great coffee massacre came to a conclusion. A month later, an unidentified party swapped out the half and half for soy-based coffee creamer. <laughs> and so it goes, right? Where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, he is there among them, if for no other reason than to referee, right? Today's, day, today's Sunday, God's Work, Our Hands. You see some people wearing God's Work, Our Hands t-shirts out among you this morning. It's a Sunday that's set aside every year, the second Sunday of September, for the last 10 years, for ELCA congregations to be somewhat intentional about being ambassadors of good, not just in the church, but within our community, right? And over the course of the last 10 years, we've done all sorts of things to make our presence known, right? Everything from um, inviting prayer requests from neighbors to sending thoughts of love and appreciation to our service members, to putting together treat bags for um, those who are first responders and our nurses in the hospital, to cleaning up the environment in our town by taking trash out of ditches like we'll do this afternoon, to putting together care bags like we will do this morning as well. All of it, though, no matter what it is, all of it's just an intentional effort to make our work just a little more visible in the community. But the real work, the hard work, is once people who are invited into our congregation, into our fellowship, become part of us, right? The real work starts when we're actually in relationship with the folks we hope to invite. Hmm? God's work, the real work, happens in relationship. 
God's work is not putting more butts in the pews of this congregation. It starts when our life together gets complicated, when it starts to get messy, when we start to harm each other. You see, some of the most important relationships that we share are with people in this room right now, huh? people with whom we share our faith, who we see week after week, right? whether it's on a Sunday or a Wednesday, whenever. The people sitting here right now with you, I know it's true that these are some important relationships to you because I've seen you celebrate with each other. I've seen you mourn together. I've seen you work together and learn together. The church is always at its very best when it's a community of love with persons caring for one another, helping one another, praying for one another, building up and challenging one another. But we don't live in a perfect world or a perfect church, do we? There are times when our relationships get strained, even to the point of breaking. It happens even here. Sometimes I think we make the mistake of thinking that disagreement means sin. That should someone have a different opinion from ours, they've somehow sinned against us. And then harsh words get spoken, thoughtless things get said, long-standing relationships get threatened, and that is the sin. And it's right there at this break point that Jesus offers some clues to us of who we are to be. Hmm? First of all, we are to be people who take that first step. If real love is present, someone's going to leave their comfort zone, right? Take a chance for the sake of a good relationship. Taking that first step, that's what disciples of Christ must do. And there's, a, frankly, a pretty profound reason why we take that first step. Because we need each other. Hmm? true in our families, it's true on the job, it's true in our community, it's certainly true within the church of Jesus Christ. There are times for all of us when our world seems like it's coming apart and we need someone to hang on to us, to listen to us, to care for us, to pray for us. The church is at its best when it fosters this sense of community among people who may come from different backgrounds, who may even disagree about a whole lot of things, even for what makes a good cup of coffee, you know? We are the church, and we do not choose each other. We are chosen for each other. That's worth saying again. We are chosen for each other. Once someone enters this fellowship, we are a part of them, and they us. Our job isn't always to agree, it's to love one another because we need one another, because we know that we're less than complete without the other. You know, there's a promise that goes with this identity. It's too important to miss. When we work at reconciliation, when we seek to be that kind of community, Jesus promises, I am there in the middle of you. (laughs) I'm right there. That's how this passage from Matthew concerning controversy ends, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the middle of them. It's not an easy thing to live together in community. It's going to get messy. Hmm? 
Our patterns of communication these days don't seem to make it much easier, right? We have all sorts of ways in which we can actually avoid talking to each other face to face. It's not easy to confront someone for the sake of mending a relationship. Just like it's not always easy to lift someone up in prayer when instead you'd like to curse them out. Hmm? It's not always easy to care for each other, but there's power in it. There's healing in it. There's power in Christian fellowship and listening and patience. There's power in that kind of love. We heard Paul and Romans say this morning, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love is the fulfilling of the law, all of it. When we're in the right kind of relationship with each other, we sense that Jesus is in the, is in the middle of it. So, our worship, our weekly worship of God does not end here at 9, 9.30 or at 11.45 when I pronounce the benediction. You take this worship out into the world with you. You take it into your home. You take it into your places of work, into your school. You take it with you in your play, in all of it. Hmm? Your hands are about God's work the whole week long as you invite others into relationship with you and then as you do the important work of tending those relationships when they are strained. And this is really good news because it's exactly what the world needs right now. Thanks be to God. Amen.